We're going to wrap up Abraham, wrap up the life of Abraham. Genesis chapter 24 this morning. It is at the very, very, very beginning uh, of your Bible. And we're going to just jump straight into the text. We've got a little bit of ways to go. It's a really long chapter. And it's interesting how it's broken out and how it's laid out and what's given prominence by volume of Scripture, by volume of verses. And so I just want to start in verse chapter 24. We're going to read the first nine verses. I want you to see from the very beginning, Abraham is getting it. Abraham's faith, his trust in God, his belief that God's will, God's words, God's character is going to manifest itself in his life. His confidence is growing. And at this spot where he's toward the end of his life, he's going to demonstrate to us the confidence that he has, that God is attentive to his situation, that God is near, that God has power over the things Abraham can see and power over the things that Abraham can't see. We're going to see that Abraham, and the point, first point today is simply that he expects God to show up. He expects God to work with power. It's not surprising to him. He knows God. He doesn't just know about God, and he expects God to. To deliver. Let's read the first nine verses of Genesis 24, just about the end of Abraham's life, with son, without any grandbabies. Now Abraham was old, verse 1, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country, to my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Six, Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angels before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you are, you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and he swore to him concerning this matter. We have seen Abraham, we've seen the ebb and flow of his life. We have seen these incredible moments of faith, and we have seen these colossal setbacks. We've even seen him repeat the same dumb mistake multiple times. We've seen that, and God has delivered on his promises, in spite of the fact that often Abraham has just proved wholly unworthy of them. God promised him land to make a great nation, and Abraham seeing that land and enjoying that land, God had promised to bless Abraham and bless those who bless him. And Abraham has seen that as he pursued the kings that had captured his nephew and family, uh, Lot. God has promised to be against those who are against Abraham, and God has delivered on that promise. God, most of all, had promised to make him a father of many nations, and Abraham had a son, and had a son at a very old age, a miracle child, the child of the promise. 
and still no grandkids. Isaac's still unmarried, no prospects. And so Abraham says, Lord, this is great, but it doesn't seem like everything's materializing just yet. Where are my grandbabies? Some of you are waiting for grandbabies. Abraham is looking for grandbabies as a fulfillment of God's promise to make him a father of many nations. Some of us can relate to seeing God at work in our life, seeing progress, seeing him call to us, seeing him draw to us, seeing his favor, uh, but then having these different pockets of life that just are not working. And so we say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. But what about my son? Thank you. But what about my health? It doesn't seem like it's materializing. It doesn't seem like I don't see your hand here. I don't see evidence that you're at work. It's not coming to be yet. Some of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul talks about the Lord will give us a way out of temptation. And maybe you've seen incredible gains, incredible victories in your relationship with the Lord. And some of the things that you struggle with now are some of the things that you don't struggle with now are things that maybe have for a very long time been an anchor around your foot. And the Lord's given you victory over those things, but you still feel like there's these, there's these nagging temptations that you can't escape. And it's like, God, you said you'd give me a way out, and I'm either blind or it's not there, or I'm just not capable of, of taking hold of it. God, thank you, thank you, thank you. Ah, but what about this? Some of you are familiar with Romans 8. Apostle Paul says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. It's on every coffee mug and in every coffee shop around and every church uh, uh, little shop where they sell Christian things. And we set those on our desk and we say defiantly, God works all things together for good. And then we look at our life and we say, well, God's caused some things to work together for good. God, what about this? What about that? And so in this moment, we see that Abraham, rather than doubting, rather than worrying, whether than saying, God, am I missing it? Are you, are you just asleep on the job? Abraham expects God to deliver. He expects God to show up. And what's really cool is he expects God to work, but then he tells his servant, hey, by the way, if a girl won't come back with you, you're released from the oath, because God's going to do something else. Not God has failed, not you have failed. God's going to do something else. He's got a plan. I don't know what it is, but he's got a plan. He's going to come through. And so we see the confidence that Abraham has. He doesn't know how, but he knows who. He doesn't know how God's going to do it, but he knows who. He knows God is going to do it. He doesn't know just about God. He knows the character of God and his confidence that God's character and his will and his ways and his words are going to come true in his life. Kind of makes me think of John 14 and John 16. Those are two texts in the New Testament where Jesus says, if you follow me, you will do even greater things, talking to his followers, than you've seen me do. And so they're thinking, hmm, we'll we'll see about that. Uh, And then in John 16, he says to them again, it's good that I go away from you. 
it's good that I go back up to the Father because if I don't go up to the Father, the Helper won't come. And it's actually better for you that the Helper is here than for me. And so the, the tone of, of those passages is that as we follow Christ, the Spirit's power enables really spectacular things to happen in our life. Reconciled marriages, reconciled relationships, patterns of of destructive behavior, maybe generational patterns of destructive behavior, sin, addictions, etc., etc., overcome in His power, freed from the shackles of those things. And so here we see that Abraham expects God to work. And I think for most of us, if we're honest, and then we look at our lives and we think about maybe a time where he's worked or a time where we would say, "Ah, I don't know that if if he is, we tend to be shocked when God shows up. We tend to be caught off guard when we actually see a marriage reconciled. It tends to cause us to stand up, whoa, I I didn't think God was actually going to do something. I mean, I know that I prayed and I know that he listens, but I didn't think he was going to actually do something. And so we see, even in our hearts, that duplicitous uh, doubt. Maybe even after we've taken something to the Lord and after he's answered a prayer, surprised, shocked that he intervened. I wonder how our lives would be different if we were able to have this mentality that we see in Abraham, where he's just able to say, God's got this. How would our anxiety about work How would our fear about some of the relational things happening in our lives, how would our posture towards our our country, our community, uh, how would that change if this idea of God's got this really was imprinted on our hearts? One of the ways that we we see our doubt together, uh, some of us carry a lot of burdens on our shoulder, a lot of straining to try to make life work, a lot of straining to try to control our future, a lot of straining to try to produce some sort of good things for ourselves or for others, for those that we care about. Uh, It kind of makes me think of the show American uh, Ninja Warrior. Some of you have seen it. Uh, It's these ridiculously fit men and women competing in these obstacle courses. And the funny thing is you watch it and you think, I could do that. That's not that hard. Uh, And then you you see people that are are obviously in better shape than you are uh, fail. And, and so they're running through obstacle courses and they might be running on something that's spinning. And if they lose their balance, they fall and they fail. They might have to jump from, you know, hoop to hoop to hoop, uh, swinging their body. And if they lose their grip, if they let go, they fall and they fail. They don't jump far enough. If they don't run fast enough, they fall and they fail. And so for some of us, that's kind of what life looks like. It's this perpetual straining, fearful that if we just take our eyes off the prize for a second, I just lose my temper once, I'm going to fall and I'm going to fail. Because the burden of our lives, the burden of those near to us is on our shoulders. And and so what we see here from Abraham is Abraham's not straining. Abraham's saying, God's got this. Abraham's not controlling everything. Abraham's not even going to go with his servant to look for the girl. When the servant asks the question, what if she won't come back with me? The construction of the verbs there is used in other passages in the Old Testament. And it's often used to express shock as if the uh, suggestion is uh, unworthy or or not something that's possible. Uh, The idea being that Abraham is, no way, she's coming. No way. I know God. God's got this. 
The next thing that we see here is uh, God is going to exceed Abraham's expectations. Abraham expects God to show up and deliver, and God is going to exceed his expectations. If you still have your Bibles open, let's continue in Genesis 24. We're going to jump down, and I'll read 12 through 25. Uh, Just look for the ways that God exceeds Abraham's expectations. Verse 12, and it says this. The servant has left Abraham. The servant has arrived uh, at the village. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the springs of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please, give me a little water to drink from your jar. Verse 18, she said, drink, my Lord, and she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether or not the Lord had prospered his journey. Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels and said, please tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. We have plenty and room to spend the night. So, we pause for a second. In the verses preceding what I read, Abraham's servant, who is the oldest in his house, who is his most trusted uh, advisor, most trusted servant, in charge of all he has, sets out. The text says he goes with like 10 camels. So you've got to really envision not a shepherd and a bunch of dirt and some stinky camels you really have to see this as like a presidential motorcade so if you've been in washington dc and seen the president drive through and you've heard the lights and you've heard the sirens and the limousines and then the suburbans with the back windows flipped up because there's secret service people in the back looking out with their rifles that's the kind of entourage that he's coming with incredibly luxurious over the top rare for persons of that day and he shows up in town as this sophisticated, competent master of the house, one underneath Abraham himself with this huge entourage. And so, again, presidential motorcade, and then the text is going to say later, uh, bags full of maybe Gucci and gold to give to the family as a dowry. I added that. It doesn't say that. So he's highly competent, and he's got bags of money 
And instead of showing up and saying, all right, let's sit back and see who we want, he pauses and says, it doesn't matter who I want. God, who do you want for Isaac? I imagine that on this trip, uh, he's thinking to himself, you know, Isaac is a little bit shorter than average. I've got to find a girl even shorter than Isaac. This is going to be tough. Or Isaac is really boring. Uh, the guy needs to lighten up. I've got to find someone who can laugh, who can smile. How can I find someone who can laugh? Maybe Isaac's not very organized. God, send me someone who can make life work for Isaac because Isaac is going to make a mess of things. He sets all that aside. He comes into town, all of his competence, all of his resources, and says, "Mm, none of this matters. Lord, would you bring me the woman that you have planned for Isaac? And he says, when I ask a young woman to draw some water, would she feed me and also draw water from the animals? An incredible act of generosity, an incredible act of hospitality for ten camels. There's no pump. She's got to be the pump. Lord, would you make it known to me? And then what does verse 15 say? Before he even opens his eyes, Rebecca. Some of you guys have been praying for a long time for things. I can think of things that I remember even as a child praying for decades for. One of the ways the Lord exceeds Abraham's expectations, one of the ways the Lord exceeds his servant's expectations is he moves really quickly. Some of us think that that's impossible. <laughs> um, but the Lord does move quickly in some instances. Uh, let me turn to Isaiah 65. I'll read verse 24, and I just want you to see that it is uh, the posture of the Lord Uh, to hear. Uh, And sometimes uh, we think he hears and he's slow. Sometimes we think he hasn't heard. Um, I want you to see that we have a very attentive uh, father here. Verse 24 of of Isaiah 65, the Lord talking says, before they call, I will answer. While they are still yet speaking, I will hear. And it's talking about the Lord's willingness and readiness to forgive and receive his people back to himself and make right what they have made wrong and the posture of his heart towards us is ready is waiting is listening is attentive is ready to move and so how neat is it for this servant who's taken this incredible journey the lord meets him there and exceeds his expectations by moving quickly the second way that he exceeds the servant's expectations is he provides a wife he provides a match of a lineage that is just far beyond what Abraham or the servant could have ever imagined. And this one doesn't translate super well for our culture because we tend to just not put as much value in where a person comes from, who their parents might have been, what positions in a community their parents held, um, right? We're individuals. We want to pick everything. It wants to be the, the girl that I want to marry, the guy, etc. And so uh, I want you just to see that this girl, Rebecca, is the granddaughter of one of Abraham's brothers. And so not just is she the granddaughter of one of Abraham's brothers, she's the orphaned daughter of one of Abraham's other brothers who passed away. And so 
to us, again, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> Actually, it doesn't sound like a blessing. It sounds strange. Uh, but as we've read before, uh, if a man passed away, his brother had the responsibility, whether his wife uh, outlived him or daughter, to take that person into his home and continue the family line and to do right by her. And so Abraham's brother does that with his orphaned niece, and Rebecca is the granddaughter of that union. And so we see that the Lord has just spoken into so many difficult situations uh, with something extraordinary, inviting Rebecca into the family of promise, inviting Rebecca into his promise to Abraham by way then of Isaac uh, and so forth. And so God just exceeds their expectations in every way. And, and I would say just maybe as a blanket statement for those of you that can go back to seasons of life where the Lord met your expectations in some remarkable way, those become landmark moments and when life gets difficult, when faith gets difficult, when following Jesus gets difficult, we look back at those landmark moments and say, ah, uh, I'm not concerned. Look what God did back then. That was actually much more difficult, much scarier, more unknown than now. And they become things that take the fear out of our future. It makes me think of just even the process of relocating from Southern California uh, to Roseburg. And for me, growing up in Northeast Washington, the transition was not filled with a ton of mystery and a bunch of unknowns. But for my wife, who was born and raised in Southern California, it was a lot different. Roseburg is not Southern California. Uh, 99 and a half of those reasons are good reasons, are good things, uh, you know, about Roseburg. Um, 18 months later, you know, she she has cowgirl boots and likes wearing them. She likes to feed the cows. She would like to get rid of our van and get a truck. And, I, and I'm like, you know, where where did this come from? Who are you? Uh, all of those questions circle, but the, the overarching theme is, wow, I just got to watch my wife make a huge transition, tons of unknowns, tons of new, tons of different for her, and wow, she's done it well. Wow. So it takes away some of the fear of what might be in our future because I know the character of my wife. I know that she can handle new. She can handle change. She can handle different. We've recently uh, started homeschooling. And, I mean, if I'm honest, the context I grew up in, those were the kids that got made fun of. And, and so that's my only exposure to homeschooling. And yet here we are, kind of a curveball in our lives, and I'm watching my wife spend all day with our kids, which is a challenge, and I see incredible fruit in each of their lives. I see incredible fruit in her life as she leans on the Lord to be attentive to them, even when she's exhausted. And so as she exceeds my expectations in these situations where new things are thrown at her, where there's unknowns, never done this before, takes away some of the fear for the future. And when and if our life changes in some dramatic way, I know the character, I know the heart, I know the capacity of my wife to navigate new, to navigate uncertainty, to navigate difficulty, and it takes some of the fear out of the future. We see that God, we see that Abraham expects God to show up. We see that God exceeds Abraham's expectations, moves quickly, I wonder how often we miss God moving quickly because we go to him last. 
um, most of us, and I won't put it on you, I'll put it on me, uh, go to the Lord once we've exhausted every option at our disposal, right? Every option at our disposal. And if we go to him first, it's like a quick kind of like uh, tag you're it, just quick, uh, and then, okay, I've got to get busy because you're not going to do anything. I've got to go get busy bringing about this thing that I want to have happen, that I need to have happen. I wonder how many uh, opportunities we miss to see God work, even to see him move quickly because we go to him last or go to him after exhausting everything at our disposal. We see Abraham expecting God to deliver. We see God exceeding his expectations. Uh, third, we see that God, God's promises are carried out through a savvy, faithful servant. We see that God's promises are carried out through a faithful servant, through an obedient servant, through a servant that submits to his leading. Uh, I want to read through 29 through 61, and I'm going to kind of hop around because I just want you to see the thrust of the text with this servant making a case to Rebecca's father and to Rebecca's brother that they should send Rebecca with him back to his master. And in one sense, it's incredible. This guy should be a lawyer. He presents a great case to try to woo them to send Rebecca with him. But in another sense, you have this very competent man pouring himself into the mission that Abraham has entrusted him to, but everything about that mission is beyond him. This is God's promise to Abraham, God's promise to make Abraham a father of a multitude of nations, God's promise to do it through Isaac, so God's the one who's going to provide the wife. God himself swore by himself, saying, I will bring these things to pass. So in one sense, the servant is doing something that he can't do on his own, and he's giving himself wholly to it. Uh, starting in verse 33 of chapter 24. He's at their house. Uh, they're at the pinnacle of hospitality. It says, then food was set before him to eat. In verse 33, food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. So either the brother or the father speaks up. He says, speak on. Verse 35, to the Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. And he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. In other words, my master's parents are loaded. Verse 36, and Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. In other words, Isaac is a trust fund kid, and Isaac gets everything. 37, my master made me swear, saying, you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. You can almost envision the servant looking around the table, looking at Rebecca's father and saying, we're family. We're family. Come on. We're family. Jumping down into 42 now, uh, the servant is going to make the case that this is not his doing. This is something God has set in motion. Verse 42, he says, I came today 
to the spring, and I said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, Please give me a little drink of water from your jar to drink, and who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for you and your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. Before I had finished speaking in my heart, Behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder. She went down to the spring and drew quickly. I said to her, please let me drink. She quickly let down her jar from her shoulder and said, drink, and I will give your camels drink also. You can see the servant telling the story, looking at the father, looking at the brother, looking at her other siblings, looking at the servants and saying, do you see that God has led us together? This is God's doing. He has brought us together today. I'm not even, this is not even me asking you. This is what God has destined for us. And if you jump down to 49, he says, now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. In other words, are you going to send her or are you going to go against the will of the Lord? Are you going to send her with me or are you going to go against the will of the Lord? One of the things I love about watching this servant is it is clear that the lessons that the Lord has taught Abraham in Egypt when Abraham doubted that God could take care of him, with King Abimelech when Abraham doubted that this wicked king would treat him well, with Lot in the villages of Sodom and Gomorrah, and when those wicked kings came and captured Lot and his family and the other kings, and Abraham gave pursuit and chased them, the Lord led him to do that and gave him victory over these kings that he had no business going to war with. We can see that the lessons that the Lord taught Abraham have sent a ripple effect through his home. The things that he has learned, his servants have learned. And so it's just a good reminder to us, whether you're a grandpa, grandma, mother, father, husband, wife, man, woman, child, that when we take a step towards the Lord, when God shows himself faithful to us, it sends a ripple effect through our sphere of influence. When we take a step away from the Lord towards self-sufficiency, away from trusting him, towards doing things our way, the way that we've always done them, it sends a ripple effect through our homes, sends a ripple effect through our spheres of influence because now when someone looks at your life, they see what you've done. When we take a step towards God, when he shows himself faithful and people look at our lives, they see what God has done. The servant comes, he presents this elaborate speech. You can imagine him rehearsing that speech on his journey all the way there. Uh, He presents his speech, gives himself fully to it, doesn't cut any corners. He makes a case. Interestingly enough, Laban, the brother, is presented as this greedy fool from everywhere that he mentions. He's not mentioned in a positive light. And it even says in the text that Laban noticed the riches, noticed the entourage, noticed the presidential motorcade, and then he runs out to greet them. And so you can imagine Laban's like, okay, he's counting up the cost of the camels, he's counting up everything that's coming, he's I want in on this somehow. And so he's 
first out the door, flattering, greeting, welcoming, buddy-buddy, uh, all of this. And so the servant sees that and starts, first of all, with the wealth and the riches of his master. We just see this incredible uh, level of persuasion, of gamesmanship even. And at the end, uh, you know, the ABCs of selling, always be closing. He gets right in their face at the end and says, will you do what I've asked or will you reject the Lord? Will you do what I've come here to do and send Rebecca or will you say no to the Lord? We see an incredible effort. It's half the passage, half of the text by volume of verses. It makes me think about the uh, innovation we see in the marketplace, innovation we see from big companies, innovation we see from those motivated primarily to earn a profit. And it makes me wonder, why wouldn't there be more innovation in a community of followers of Christ to find ways to show the love of God to this community? You think about the work that not-for-profits do in our community, and there's some fantastic ones that are shrewd, that are great stewards of their time and resources. It makes me wonder, wouldn't God's people, people following Christ, be even more shrewd with their time and their resources if we're not just trying to do good, but trying to show people the love of Jesus? Think about athletes. We love the Olympics, and we love the way that uh, we get a glimpse into their lives, and we marvel at the things they have sacrificed to try to just have a chance to win gold. Wouldn't it make sense that those following Jesus would be ready to sacrifice so much more to make disciples, to help people see and savor the love of Jesus? Sometimes we think... uh, Following the Lord is like waiting for the school bus to come and pick us up. You just got to stand in the right spot and wait. And then he does everything. Probably the picture is more like one of those old Viking ships that we've seen pictures of where everybody has an oar and everybody has a part to play. Everyone has a spot on the ship. I remember riding the bus when I was young and when I was the youngest on the bus. And so I was scared probably timid, probably fearful, and with some regularity, because I was probably like two feet tall, uh, the school bus driver missed my stop on the way home. And so most people would raise their hand or yell or throw something. I would just sit there. And so I imagine it ticked him off pretty good when repeatedly he would get mostly done with the route and look back and see a little bit of brown hair sticking over the seat and think, oh, I got to turn around again and take him home, right? What would he, he would just want me to speak up and say something, right? I don't have to do much. Just say something. Wave your, just get my attention. So could we be a church that speaks up? Could we be a church that says something? Right? If, we have, if we're following Jesus, we have an oar. We have a part to play. We have a sphere of influence. We have a mission field. The next six weeks, This is our last week for Abraham. The next six weeks will be a series titled The Art of Neighboring. And it really has just uh, three objectives to it. One, expose us to the needs in our community. So to do that, we'll have uh, Rick Snyder, the new principal at Winchester Elementary, elementary school that we're partnering with on a regular basis. He'll be here. He'll share for maybe 10 minutes the needs that exist in his school, the needs that exist in the Winchester 
community. Uh, and then at the end of that service, we'll bring up all of you that have had a part in Winchester Elementary. It's like 30-some people. Uh, and we'll just pray for Rick. We'll pray for you, pray for people here that are employed by Winchester Elementary, and commission this upcoming school year, entrusting those students and those families to the Lord, asking the Lord, how do we play our part? A couple weeks later, we'll have someone from DHS here, and they'll share what does the landscape of Douglas County look like from their point of view. At the end of that time, we'll commission some families here who are actively trying to adopt uh, through the system right now, who are actively trying to adopt in a variety of settings and contexts. That we can be a part of their journey, but we can be attentive to the needs in our community and also encouraging and praying for those in those spheres who are trying to row with the oar that the Lord has given to them. So one of the objectives is simply to expose ourselves to the kinds of needs in our community. The second thing is to be encouraged by people in those spheres serving the Lord whose work is obviously and evidently blessed by our Father. And then finally, we just want to weekly ask ourselves the question, how is the Lord stirring in my heart? What is he putting a passion for? Who is he putting a passion for? What is my sphere of influence? We would be people responsive to his voice, responsive to where he leads, that we would just row with the oar that he's given us to row with. As we finish the text today, verses 62 through 67 record uh, Rebecca going with the servant. They arrive. It's kind of a weird passage. It says that she sees him out in the field and she jumps off her horse and uh, says to the servant, who is that man out in the field that's coming towards us? It kind of reads like a romance novel. Um, But we see that the Lord has done exactly what he said he was going to do. We see that the Lord has proven faithful, proven reliable over and over and over and over again. Abram or Abraham appears roughly 300 plus times uh, in the Bible. I hope when we see the name Abram, I hope when we see the name Abraham, we think hope in God. We think hope in God, hope in God despite our pasts. Because we know that Abraham was called out of a family, out of a home, out of a community uh, that worshipped other gods. We think hope in God in spite of our past. We think hope in God in spite of our failures. Because we're reminded in the entirety of this text about Abraham's repeated failures. And so for those of us in the room that can't get over our past, can't get over our failures, can't get over even the hidden things in our life right now that nobody knows about, we would see that there is hope in a reliable and faithful God in spite of our unworthiness of his favor and in spite of our failures themselves. That we would be reminded to, God, to hope in God despite what we can't see. Here we see Abraham expecting God to come through, expecting God to deliver. Part of the promise and the faithfulness of the Lord to Abraham extends way beyond Abraham's lifetime. In Galatians chapter 3, at the end of the text, it says, All of us who are found in Christ, everyone who is a Christ follower, is part of that promise of God's faithfulness to Abraham, is part of that covenant. 
the blessing to the ends of the earth, the blessing to all nations that God promised through Abraham is evident in each of our lives if we're following Christ today. That we would hope in God despite what we can't see. This hope in God despite what we can't imagine working out. Hope in God uh, despite the unknowns and the uncertainty. And last, that we would simply hope in God for really big things. The scope of God's blessing to Abraham just far exceeds anything he could have ever imagined, right? He said, descendants more numerous than the sand on the shore, than the stars in the sky. That God is always thinking so much bigger than what we're thinking. The Apostle Paul uh, finishes Ephesians 3 by saying, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That we would go to God with big asks, addictions, reconciled marriages, reconciled relationships, the people that we've written off, asking the Lord to intervene, disrupt the patterns of dysfunction and rescue. A story is told about Alexander the Great about a general who he promised to pay for uh, the general's uh, daughter's wedding. And and the way the story goes, the general uh, submits his receipt for the wedding to the person over Alexander's money, and the guy is shocked at how much he spent. So he takes it to Alexander the Great thinking he's going to flip. And when he gets the bill, when he gets the receipt, the person over the money says, well, what do you want me to do with this? And Alexander the Great looks at him and he says, pay it in full. In asking for me to pay for this incredible sum, he pays me great respect because he believes that I am both incredibly wealthy and incredibly generous. And so rather than being put off by the enormity of the request, He sees that his general has paid him the greatest compliment uh, he could. So I don't know if you've ever given your kids the credit card or they've come back and spent a little bit more than they did, but this is not that. We can go to God with big asks. Like he digs us. He loves us. Not just some future version of us. He loves us now. When you see Abraham, when you see Abram, as it comes up in your study, as it comes up as you're reading, Hope in God in spite of our past, in spite of our unworthiness. Hope in God in spite of what we can't see. Hope in God for big things. Let's pray. Lord, we ask again this week for faith. We thank you, Lord, that Abraham's life is a testimony to your faithfulness, Lord, not his. Your goodness, not his. Lord, it's so easy then to put ourselves into the story. And to resonate with the frustrations, the unknowns, the uncertainty, the fear, Lord, that uh, defined so many of Abraham's encounters with you and with others. Uh, Lord, and that through this text, through the life of Abraham, that you would inspire us, encourage us, remind us that we can hope in you. Lord, in spite of our past, in spite of our failures, in spite of what we can't see, can't understand, don't get, don't know. Lord, that we would be 
people that might not see, might not know how, but that we would know who. Uh, Lord, make us confident. Confident in who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.